Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership Solutions. We are very excited this evening to host our first uh, candidate interview for the 2020 uh, Oregon Governor's Office for the State of Oregon, the race that is, boy, it's upon us all. We're very excited today. I'm very excited this evening to have with us um, Jim Huggins. Uh, Jim is going to be uh, our first gubernatorial candidate. He is a well-spoken, intelligent, capable man, capable leader, seasoned leader. We're very grateful and thankful for the time he has given us tonight. And before we get into the questions, I'm going to begin by reading Jim's bio. Jim Huggins is a husband and father, a decorated veteran U.S. Air Force officer, currently the president and CEO of New Shepard Films, and is an award-winning filmmaker and screenwriter. He decided to run for governor because he watched over 100 consecutive nights of violence destroy once beautiful downtown Portland, and none of the ineffective or incompetent politicians did anything to stop it. He is passionate and committed to making government do what it's supposed to do, keep you safe. He holds two doctorates in engineering management and divinity an MS in engineering and a BS in mathematics. He completed postgraduate studies in leadership, international relations, management, communication, physics, space systems, and project management. He founded New Shepherd Films, an independent film, family film production company in 2009, and is a member of the board of advisors of Valorous TV, a subscription TV service that focuses on shows that inspire, thrill, and educate. He is a recipient of 26 medals and awards and is a member of military medals and awards. And he is a member of Phi Kappa Phi National Honor Society and Delta Epsilon Tau Academic, Academic Honor Society. He lives in Salem with his wife, two teenage sons, a young adult daughter, and several rescue dogs. For more information, you can contact his campaign, Make Government Do What It's Supposed to Do, at 503-881-2244. Uh, Jim Huggins, candidate for the Office of Governor, our highest elected executive position here in the state of Oregon. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your willingness to speak to Molina Leadership Solutions tonight. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well, Mark, and, and thank you for having me. It's uh, certainly an honor to be able to talk with you and your audience and particularly be part of Molina Leadership. Thank you for that. Well, thank you, sir. For those that are listening, ladies and gentlemen, in the interest of full disclosure, we have forwarded uh, Jim's campaign some questions. And so we're going to follow the one-on-one -on -one conversation script tonight. He's going to answer questions. We'll have some ancillary questions based on his responses. But we're looking forward to hearing more about his platform, knowing more about his political perspective, as, as well as his sense of higher duty and higher calling to ascend to the highest elected executive office in the state of Oregon. Jim, why don't we go ahead and take a few minutes, take about 15 minutes or as long as you need, and make some introductory comments to the audience about who you are and about your campaign. Well, thank you, Mark. Hopefully I won't take up 15 minutes and, and bore everybody, but we'll try to give you a little bit of an overview. You know, I think one of the worst things that can happen is when good people sit on the sidelines and do nothing. <clears throat> and right now we've got a lot of things going on in this state 
where people need to do something. We need to get up and we need to get involved. I sat back and took a look at, and as you read in the, in the introduction there, over 100 consecutive nights of rioting in, in Portland, downtown Portland, 892 people were arrested that Multnomah County District Attorney Mike Ketchenrelly Schmidt refused to prosecute. Now, I'm choosing my word very carefully there because refused is exactly what he did. He refused to prosecute those. And these are people, they're not just jaywalking or they've got parking tickets. These folks have felonies. They have serious crimes associated with the damage that was being done in Portland where people were being harmed. Police were being harmed. Businesses were being destroyed. And yet he allowed them to walk without anything happening to them. That doesn't even begin to make good sense as far as I'm concerned. When you have absolutely no accountability for your actions, what do you think's going to happen? So these folks continue to riot night after night after night. And ultimately, we can go to Portland today and see the damage and the devastation that's occurred, not just to, to people that have been injured, not just to the police department that's been devastated, we look at the property around there and we see businesses that will never come back. The impact of this activity has far-reaching uh, consequences. So for example, today, if you're a small business and you want to try to get insurance and you're in Portland, good luck with that. You actually have to insure businesses. I can tell you as a small business owner with Salem, uh, down here in Salem, uh, New Shepherd Films, we have to have insurance as well. In fact, last year, uh, this time last year, we were filming our third film called The 211 Home. And we were in the middle of filming and our insurance company called up and said, we're going to cancel your policy. Um, that would have shut us down completely. And the reason they were going to shut us down was because they didn't want to do business in uh, Oregon anymore, predominantly because of Portland. Fortunately, we were able to find another carrier and be able to get our insurance replaced within 48 hours so we could continue work. Otherwise, we would have lost everything. And we had actors that had come in from all over the state and a few from across the country to come do this movie. It's the same thing with campaigns, by the way. There are only four major carriers that insure political campaigns, uh, particularly at this level. And there's only four of them in the country. So we went to go get our campaign insurance when we filed to, to start up. And guess what? Three of those four no longer insure in the state of Portland. There is only one carrier that will do business in this state. These are the overarching ramifications for a state that needs help. It's more than just the riots. It's destroying our civilization. It's destroying our way of life, for that matter. That's one of the key elements of our campaign. But let's also not forget homelessness, a major, major issue here that needs to have true solutions to it. We also have to take a look at the simple fact of just extreme violence, criminal violence, not being prosecuted. But we also go look at the sentencing structure. Measure 11, for example, a key sentencing provision where the most violent criminals would go away for a long time has been removed by the legislature two years ago, which goes against the people's votes. And I don't know if you're aware of that or not. And then finally, we go take a look at the education system where you no longer have to be able to prove proficiency that you can read, write, or do arithmetic in order to get a high school diploma. 
we were already at the bottom of the list and I didn't think it possible, but Governor Brown, well, she dug a hole for the basement and shoved us in there and we don't even have a ladder to climb out. That is absolutely ridiculous. Our education system in the state is also at the bottom and the list goes on. But the important thing is I can't sit by and watch this happen to an absolutely beautiful state with 4.3 million people suffering as a result of incredibly poor political leadership. And there's a difference between political leadership and real leadership and management. We do not have real leadership. We have political leadership and that's got to stop. Very good. That's a lot to take in. Um, thank you for your uh, honest assessment. Thank you for your candor and your concise um, commentary. I'd like to ask a few things. First of all, the district attorney and in Portland, do you know if it's because of the COVID and the inability to keep people in jail and or sentence them to keep them in prison due to COVID? Uh, we know that's affecting the local jails here in Lane County Jail as well as the Springfield right. Municipal Jail. Is that a predominant factor in, uh, or is that a, yeah, is it a predominant characteristic of the decision-making process in Portland, do you know? Well, not according to what uh, uh, Mike Schmidt wrote whenever he made the statement that he was not going to be prosecuting these individuals. Uh, it had nothing to do with COVID at the time. Specifically, what he referred to was um, he didn't want to, to um, impact, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, he didn't want to impact their, their rights to be able to uh, uh, demonstrate freely, and he didn't want to be perceived that, that um, uh, those rights were being violated. He did not come down on the side of law. He did not come down on the side of his oath, but he was more concerned about protecting the rights um, to, to demonstrate. I have absolutely no problems whatsoever with anyone exercising their First Amendment rights. In fact, you have to. If we can't do that, then we don't have the society that we should have under the Constitution. But the moment that you do damage, at the moment you, you are um, creating a criminal act, then you must be treated as a criminal we have laws for that, and that is what separates civilized society from anarchy, and we really have to follow that. Unfortunately, they didn't do that in Portland. There's other areas where that's not going on, but specifically Portland is definitely, within the state of Oregon, has been at the, the epicenter of that. And we can look at our, uh, the Portland Police Bureau with the tremendous number of, of uh, I would say defections, but some of them are early retirement. Some of them are just quitting. They're just leaving. They can't fire. They can't uh, hire the, uh, the officers that they need. And they're down hundreds of officers uh, in an area where they need at least twice what they've got. This whole notion of defunding the police is an absolutely insane idea. If you don't like how the money's being spent, well, we can go work on that. We can work on the training and improve, uh, uh, you know, reactions and relations with the, the citizens but you just don't take the money away, particularly when your city's burning around you. Let's talk about some of those things. Let's talk about, um, from what I understand about some of the requests for defunding the police, it is about redistribution of some of those funds for different kind of policing, meaning more mental health experts, uh, more uh, de-escalation training, uh, maybe uh, adding, for instance, 
uh, cahoots that we have here, having adding that kind of element to a police force potentially, and having still having armed. We know you're going to have to have armed law enforcement. There's going to be that criminal element that will only submit to armed law enforcement or armed response. We know that that's a reality, but. <clears throat> Within the concept of maybe not defund the police, but let's talk about maybe reframe policing itself. If you're elected governor, what are some of the thoughts you might have about that kind of working model? Right. Well, first of all, we need to make absolutely sure that the that the law enforcement model includes not just law enforcement, our, our, our police officers who are arresting, they investigate the crimes and so forth, but it also involves the prosecution side, the judicial side of, of this process, where when the officers do their job and they do their job well, that they know that their work's not going to be thrown out or in some cases absolutely refused. Okay. Um, number one, that doesn't do a good job at all. It's sending the message that crime is taken seriously. In terms of, of uh, our police forces and their interactions with the citizens. When I talk about def we, we're not going to defund the police, in fact, we'd actually increase spending. But one of the key phrases that I use with that is, is that we're going to make sure that the money gets to where it needs to be. It's going to get to the street level. And by that, I mean, it gets to where the officers are that are on the street that are interacting with the civilian population, that they are able to not only have the tools they need, but they're able to use them effectively. And what are tools? We're not talking about just, you know, weapons and other things of that. It's training. Absolutely critical that we improve their training because a lot of the de-escalation can occur long before it gets any sort of, of, of physical involvement or anything like that. A lot of that can happen. However, you have to be prepared for when it, go, when it doesn't go well and it can, the situation can change just like that. You've got to be prepared to handle that and, and take care of that situation as well. If we don't have that, then what's going to occur is exactly what we've got in Portland, where you have police now that are not able to engage anymore. I think that in fairness to law enforcement, over the years, uh, there's those that will say law enforcement has become too militarized, <clears throat> and potentially that is true. But the other side of this uh, request or pressures on law enforcement is police officers are now being placed in roles where they're basically play, uh, responding as principal, prophet, priest, counselor. It's, it's expanded. We've expected a lot of law enforcement. And in fairness, I know there's a lot of people that are anti-law enforcement because of the lack of skill in responding to these uh, High, uh, seriously emotionally distressing moments uh, that we're, we all get caught up in. But uh, I think that as you're talking about the get the money down to the street level to get the officers the training that they need so there's not an over-response or an overreaction. That's important. And I think that's a very good point that you make is that we do expect, um, we do expect a lot of times the, the, the police officer or law enforcement that shows up at, in the middle of a crisis However you want to define that crisis, whatever happens to be going on, that police officer shows up and there's the, the expectation 
that this is going to be the solution. This, he, he or she is going to be able to solve whatever's going on and handle it. And the downside of that is that's not always true because that's an unfair expectation we're placing on our law enforcement. And, and I can tell you from a military perspective that that's, that's also true in the military. Um, you Particularly when you take a force or forces and go into, uh, into an area as a peacekeeping role under the United Nations, for example, like what we did in Somalia back in, um, in the early 90s, all right? We went into Somalia as a peacekeeping force, but we're not, military's not trained in that fashion. We had to get additional training, and then the rules of engagement changed. So I understand the difficult situation we're putting our military in, as well as our civilian law enforcement, okay? I've seen what happens when you do that with the military, and I'm seeing the same thing resulting because it's incredibly unfair to the law enforcement side. At the same time, guess who else it's unfair to? The civilian population. Mm -hmm. So ultimately what we have is a scenario that doesn't really work well for anybody except for the criminal element who can now play both sides against each other and get what they want. What would you say to the legitimate concerns that citizens have, in particular BIPOC community has regarding excessive use of force, potential excessive use of force, or potential over-response by police to someone that is in the community of color. What would you say to them? They're, they're, they're going to hear this interview, uh, Jim, and they're going to want to know that, wait a minute, is he calling us all criminals because we, we protested? Is he against all of us? Or what, what are we talking about here? No, if you are protesting and you are within the law, you're not a criminal. I don't care. I, I genuinely do not care about the, the, the race or the creed or ethnicity or, or, or sexual orientation. I don't care. You are a citizen. You are a human being. And you have rights. And you exercise those rights. You're all good. But when you violate law, at that point, there has to be accountability or else the civil nature of society falls apart. We have to be able to do that. In the end, like I said, I don't care about race, creed, color, or any of that. Dr. Martin Luther King said it best, and this nation has gotten away from it year after year, decade after decade, when he said it doesn't matter about the color. It's the content of your character. I judge people based on their actions. The rest of it doesn't matter. And that's one lesson that the military just absolutely hammered home back in the 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s that it truly doesn't matter who the person is. We all bleed red, okay? It's about your character. Let me see the character. If you're violating the law, that's a criminal act. We need to address it because that's what we take an oath for, regardless of whether you're the elected official, the police officer, or whomever. And that's the expectation that society has. Well, that's good. I'm, we're, you're saying a lot. I think a lot of, uh, you know, we all want to hear a re sense of reasonableness and from our leaders, a sense of legitimate concern and sincerity. Do you feel like potentially uh, that there are areas where we need to improve policing uh, um, beyond just the street level? What are your thoughts on that? You know, that's a really, that's a really good, it's also a very in-depth question because um, there's a lot of key components to it. I have several friends of mine um, that are police officers. They have been police officers for a long time. 
Um, I have uh, one very, very good friend that has stepped away from it. He just is, you know, it, it, he's not getting the support from his department. Um, and the environment he finds himself in uh, is just not safe all the way around, not just for him, but, but for his fellow officers, as well as the, the citizens around it. And when I talk with these, these friends and I talk with their, their colleagues that I've just have gotten to know as part of the process here of the campaign, there are a lot of police officers that are scared, just like the citizens are. They're scared because they don't know or they don't feel comfortable acting on what they believe to be the right course of action. And they're just not sure what's going to happen. That is something you cannot have in your law enforcement any more than I go back to, to the military as an example. If you have someone marching into battle on the field and they're, they're afraid and they're uncertain of what they can do, then there's a good chance they're going to lose that battle. In this case, there are a number of things that I think as a, uh, not just as a government, but as a society overall, we need to be uh, reviewing and working with our police, not Again, I'm going to say not defunding them because that, again, that's insane. But what we do need to be doing is working more closely with our, uh, with our law enforcement, regardless of the size of the community. I know that when I grew up, um, uh, I was raised by my grandfather. Uh, he's uh, during um, the latter part of his career, he was actually a judge. And I had some wonderful opportunities to observe firsthand the, the, the legal process, because downstairs was the police station and upstairs was the courtroom. And I can tell you that the officers and the departments that were closely linked with the uh, community, they had friendships, they had relationships, they knew each other. Those were the most effective that we had. Um, rarely did we have problems that couldn't be solved quickly and easily. But I can tell you that in the areas where the officers didn't bother to get really involved with the people in the community, that there would always be, be some problems in that area. So I think one of the things that, that we really have to do as a society is we've got to get back together with our law enforcement so where we are part of the solution and not part of the constant problem. And again, I don't care about you know race, creed, color, all of that. What I care about is whether or not you're working with character with the police, because when when the criminal elements see that, guess what? That makes it tough for them to be criminals. They're going to go elsewhere. It's it really is that simple. I know it sounds awfully simple, but it really is. But it's about relationships and relationships is something that I think that we have really lost, uh, certainly in, in, in today's society. And in the past year and a half or two, two years or so now, with all of our lockdowns and mandates and so forth, or a year and a half, I should say, social distancing, we do things remotely, we do it on the phone, we don't get face-to-face -face anymore. That's made life a whole lot worse. You know, we're both former military men and we, in the military, you are, you come together as a unit with people from all walks of life, of creed, color, background, and you learn to become a unit and you fulfill the military mission, you fulfill taking care of the welfare of those in your charge. What would you say though, Jim, to a group of uh, leaders from communities of color that say, but Jim, we really do feel like 
police are over over responding, overreacting with undue force against us. If you're elected governor, how would you respond to their their concerns about? But policing isn't fair to us. It might be fair to you, but it's not fair to us. The first thing you have to to understand when somebody has any sort of problem, you know, real, perceived, whatever it may be, it is real to that individual. Okay. And if you don't sit down at the table right off the bat and accept that what that person's telling you is their reality, you're already on the wrong foot. Okay. You have no credibility with that individual and they feel they have none with you. So all you've done is uh, escalate an adversarial situation. All right. At the same time, I, I know from talking with um, some of the leaders in, in, in various police departments around the state, I know that talking with them, they want to be heard too. They absolutely want to be heard because in some cases, they have data that would say, we don't agree with what you're saying, but what we see with the data is a different problem. What I hear with that is that both sides are saying there's a problem. They're just not agreeing on what that problem is. That's where you have to sit down and really work it out so that you do understand and come to the same conclusion on the problem. There may be more than one here, but the leadership within law enforcement, as I said, that I've spoken with, they indicate, yeah, there's a problem here. And the folks in the community, absolutely, I agree that, that they have that perspective. And I don't discount that. I'd be fooled to discount that because their feelings are real their experiences are theirs. They're not mine. Okay. But guess what? My experiences aren't yours either. All right. And if we can't work and respect each other just to start with, um, well, game over. It's not going to work at all. So as governor, one of the first things that um, I would absolutely insist that we all do, take a breath, let's sit down and let's get the real issues on the table. It has to be open. I've got to enable this con conversation because right now the, the conversation today is very one-sided. And by that, I mean one-sided on a political spectrum. That's got to stop. That's one of the issues that I have with political leadership is that it's not total leadership. Um, we went on vacation, my wife and I went on vacation in June. You know, I have a brother who sent one of my, my older brothers have since passed away, but he was a retired law, federal law enforcement agent, had an uncle who was retired uh, municipal police force. And yet I was running, up running one morning in, in Wyoming where we were staying and someone called the police on me. And that police officer, that deputy, he followed me my entire run in his big F-350. And uh, I was pretty shook up afterwards. And I know I'm not from that community, and I know that I don't look like most of the people in that community. I was upset. I was nervous. I'm a U.S. citizen. I'm a veteran. Uh, why would somebody feel the need when I'm wearing a bright yellow running jacket at 11 o'clock in the morning, yeah. feeling that I'm some kind of threat? And so... Now, in fairness, I guess, I, as I eventually turned around to the deputy sheriff and I yelled at him and I said, what? What are, you, you know, what are you following me for? I'm just running. Now, in fairness, I guess, if I look back beyond my emotion in the moment, he didn't, he didn't pull me over. He did follow me and it was intimidating. That was a big F-350 he was in. He was a big guy, a big, tall, muscular deputy. Yep. 
Now, he could have pulled up on me. He could have pulled me over. In retrospect, I know someone probably called him, and he was also just doing his job when I stopped back, when I stepped back and I think about it. But I also know how I felt, how vulnerable and afraid I felt in that moment. I'm in a strange community. I'm on vacation. Who am I going to call? What am I going to do? You know, so... Um, it, it is a big story in regards to, I mean, it's a big conversation. Yeah. We do have to be willing to listen to each other. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, and as, as, a, as I still get upset thinking about that, I do look back through a different set of lens now. Mm-hmm. He didn't pull me over. He didn't do any of those things. At some point, he did pull off and went his way when I finished running. But I think part of that, Jim... Uh, as we talk about law enforcement and the, what are we as a community expecting from law enforcement to do? Well, you you know, you touched on a whole bunch of elements in there that any one thing being different would have had a totally different outcome. And most of them would have been an even better outcome than what you had or could easily have escalated and gone the wrong direction with 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 bias thrown in. OK, so what, what it sounds like is that maybe somebody there in the neighborhood saw somebody they didn't recognize. Okay. Um, and through neighborhood watch or whatever program, you know, they're, they're going, I don't recognize this person. Why are they here? And they call the police. Hey, you need to be aware there's somebody out here, um, that we've never seen before. We don't know what he's doing. Okay. That's perfectly legit. Somebody could be perfectly concerned about that. However, the response, uh, by the police, And again, I have absolutely no idea where they were coming from on this. Maybe they've had a rash of people, you know, suddenly in yellow jackets running through through neighborhoods. I don't know. But the reality is that what I personally would have preferred to have seen is that officer approach you and welcome you to the community to find out who you are. And then finding out that you're okay. You're not a, you're obviously not casing homes or anything. You're visiting friends. Okay, great. What can I do to help you? You need anything? Good. Okay. Have a great day. Thanks for coming. Hope you'll visit, you know, hope you'll be part of the community or something other like that to be welcoming. Fundamentally, our society has gotten to where we don't trust each other just on site. Okay. We don't respect each other a lot of the times. And when we do, that it, it's very tentative. We're not an open, welcoming, loving society embracing people when if we were, I tend to think we would have a lot better situation, a lot better encounters. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand that there's the other side of that, that coin where there's a lot of people out there that will betray you in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that prey on weakness. You know, I get that. This is a societal issue. It's not something that any governor is going to sit down and fix. What the governor can do is work with the legislature, work with law enforcement, work with the citizens of the state to change our mindset and to work at being a better society. But that's nothing that you're going to legislate through executive orders or laws or anything like that. It's all a state of mind. and and, And it starts here. It starts in the heart. And people have got to have hope that that's going to work. Right now, I talk to a lot of people that feel they're hopeless. They feel helpless. They feel victimized by our own government. That is wrong. Let's talk a little bit. Let's uh, change a little bit uh, regarding the 100 consecutive nights of rioting 
Do you have any data, Jim, on the total amount uh, projected cost of loss of business in the downtown area? Well, that is a very good question because there's a number of different data sources that you can go to and they vary wildly, okay? Um, some of the latest numbers are, um, are done by polling the individuals that have, have suffered the loss. And then some of the numbers are coming from actual insurance claims. The problem on the insurance side is, is that that's what's been claimed, but that was only while policies were enforced. It doesn't count um, you know, deductibles, it doesn't count uh, lost properties, uninsured properties, et cetera. Um, which is why the, num why the numbers vary so wildly from hundreds of millions to, I, I, I've seen one estimate at this point, nearly a billion. Personally, I would expect it to be closer to a billion by the time you factor in all of the uninsured losses that are out there, as well as the other damages to just livelihoods having to pick up and move. Um, so that's, that's somewhat of an intangible that goes to the bottom line. And then, of course, there's the lost revenue. I mean, I'm not even talking about the lost revenue and the tax situation associated from a city standpoint. Um, the numbers are huge. It, this is truly a crisis. <clears throat> yeah, because we're talking about not just the businesses themselves, not just the buildings themselves, not just the insurance industry. But we're talking about the loss of jobs. We're talking about the loss of family, uh, the economic capacity for families, for individuals, for those that maybe have condos downtown or homes downtown. How are they going to make vehicle payments? How are they going to live when everything begins to shut down? Yeah. Uh, what do you think if you're elected governor? What do you have a strategy an initial two to three things you think you might do right off the bat to try to maybe stabilize the downtown, maybe working with beyond the legislature, but with your chamber of commerce or other business leaders? Yeah, that's um, first of all, the problem has many, many elements to it, multi multifaceted problem. OK, so if you look at it from from, just you know, a war standpoint, you got many fronts here. Each one's a bit different. In fact, some of them are very different in terms of how you have to address them. So this is gonna require a series of different initiatives. The key is though, they're all pretty much gonna to have to be executed in harmony, but there's one foundational issue that has to be addressed because if that one's not solved, nothing else matters. And that is at the core, you have got to have an effective, sustainable police force, well-trained, working with the community to enforce the laws. And then you have to have a judicial system that will prosecute the offenders under the law. And people see that we are taking it very seriously that the number one job of government is to make you safe. In the constitution, we call that the domestic tranquility. We have to make our citizens and the neighborhoods safe. We have police officers now that we've spoken with that do not want to go on calls into certain areas of Portland because they don't feel safe. So unless we address that, nothing else matters. But but let's let's move on to the next piece of that puzzle. When you have most recently three major conventions said we're not coming to Portland. They were invited to have their conventions in Portland. We, we're not coming there. Number one, we don't feel safe. Number two, we don't think our convention goers are going to be safe. And number three, we don't want to be in that environment. That is incredible. That's 
insane from my standpoint. I get where they're coming from, but the insanity is the fact that we're even in this mess when it was easily avoidable. Portland used to be and can still be a beautiful city. Oregon, in my opinion, is a drop-dead gorgeous state. I don't care if it's the east. I don't care if you're on the coast, the south, wherever. The reason my family and I moved here over six years ago, we chose Oregon because it has something for everyone. And the fact that we are in a position where we can't promote that and advertise that to the world, oh my gosh, that's a travesty in my opinion right there. So until we get our law enforcement under control, until we get our homeless situation under control, we aren't going to be able to save any part of Oregon. So those are the very first things we got to take care of. What are some of the thoughts or strategies you might have, initial thoughts or strategies you might have if elected governor? How would you address some of the unhoused issue that is very prom predominant downtown? Yeah. First of all, homelessness, unhoused, that whole scenario is not just Portland, okay? It's Portland, it's Salem, it's Eugene, it's Bend, you pick it, okay? to varying degrees. So the, so the challenge exists statewide. It is maybe more prominent in our population centers, but it's, it's prominent statewide. We have a situation where we've had our legislatures as well as Governor Brown create a political bureaucracy that's literally spent hundreds of millions of dollars on a problem but what we have is we have money going into the problem. The end result, however, is unfortunately we're moving people from point A to point B and the problem's not going away. In fact, if anything, it's growing. So we're not solving it. That bureaucracy is part of the problem because it's based on financially anyway, does, you know, like Watergate, follow the money. It's based on the concept of actually, if you never solve the problem, you'll always have money coming in. That's a microeconomy scenario that has to be broken. So what would I do? Well, as I said, the first thing you have to do to solve a problem is you have to understand it. One thing we need to understand about the homeless um, situation or crisis, if you will, is that it is not one single problem. It is not one single crisis, all right? We have individuals that make up this, this community that are dealing with some very serious psychological issues, okay? So we have, we have mental health as a key component of the homeless community. We have drug addiction. We have people that are that are addicted to incredible drugs that are not good for them, okay? But they're in there. We also have people that have families. They even have kids. They're trying to hold down jobs and they can't even get affordable housing. All right? That's a component of it. So right off the bat, you have three different issues that you're dealing with all under one single umbrella. Those all take three very different solutions to work. Let's continue on a little bit though, okay? <clears throat> Contained within there are the veterans. Up to 25% of our homeless population are veterans. These are people that have fought, they have worn the uniform, they have sworn an oath to protect and defend this country against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and here they are in a, a, a homeless environment, living under a bridge in horrid conditions, and nobody's defending them. Now, 
in defense of the, uh, the Veterans Administration, the VA was never really formed to be able to handle the types of mental issues that we've got coming back. They never were. They should have been because PTSD and other forms of, of traumatic injury to the brain, and I don't mean just physical, I'm talking about psychological, has been there since day one of warfare, okay? As any officer will tell you that's been through Air Command and Staff College or one of the similar service staff colleges, these are real issues and they've been there. But the VA was never intended to actually solve those problems and address those problems. They're not capable of doing it. So yet, here's our group of veterans. That's a good portion of them that are out there. There's another segment. Okay, so I've already covered just four segments within one umbrella. There's another segment out there, criminal element. You've got criminals that are making their money in the homeless shelter environment, the homeless not shelter, but the homeless uh, camps, and they're doing it one of two ways. There's probably others that, that I'm not thinking of, but one of two ways. They're either using the folks in there and exploiting their addictions, or they're using them as shields because they hide behind them knowing that the police aren't going to come in. They conduct their illegal activities from within these camps, right? So I'm up to five now. All very different problems, all very different solutions. And then last but not least, and I'm again, I'm, I'm giving you six, I'm sure there's probably others, but the, but the other six major group is there are folks that live in that environment by choice. That's what they want to do. <clears throat> okay. They don't, they don't contribute to anything. They just, they're just there. So we have all these different components of the homeless community that we have to sit down and look at. So as governor, <clears throat> I am not in favor of just continually throwing money at a problem, hoping it'll go away. That never works. It's not responsible. And most of the time, it's, it's an easy fix for a short period of time of a political career, if you will. And you think you've done some good. The problem is, as we look at what's happening now doing that, the people are still on the streets. There are a couple of programs, though, that we've, we've looked at because I want to go find some solutions. We need solutions now so that the day after the inauguration, and I'm sitting down at my desk, we've got solutions ready to go. So we're already looking not only at the problem, but we're looking at what we would call in the business world, best practices. Who is out there that's not associated with government funding that's actually solving the problems? What are they doing? How are they doing it? And more importantly, is the solution that they've come up with, is it what we call, is it flexible? Is it scalable and is it extensible? In other words, can it adapt to the needs? Can it be in, enlarged to handle greater need and capacity? And can it be made to be replicated in other parts of the state for, other, for, for continued success? The answer to that is, yeah, there are actually a couple of places here in the state. One's up in Portland called the Bybee Lakes Hope Center. They're doing a phenomenal job up there of working with a segment, a well-defined segment of the homeless population, taking them through their program of 18 to 24 months, and they become productive members of society. They've got jobs that are fulfilling. They are, in many cases, actually um, with been housed either in apartments or some, in fact, have been able to purchase homes. They, they're back into society. And that's worked because local businesses and local people have come together to help the local community. That's the secret in my mind, is that people working for people, working with people for the local community, not the government coming in and demanding, this is how you have to do things. Now, I will say this on the government side, 
COVID's been made <clears throat> much worse in Oregon, not just with the lockdowns and mandates, but it's been made much worse simply because the mental health issue in this state has allowed to become a crisis because mental health facilities have been shut down and denied to the patients that need it the most. Insane. Yeah, I think every, <clears throat> I know here locally in Lane County, we have community supported shelters. We have uh, Salvation Army has some great housing projects. They get a lot of people healthy and whole. <clears throat> Uh, many, many different private nonprofits that do a really good job. If you're elected governor, instead of, you know, I'll use this term pouring money, whether that's the right expression or not, how do you think it'd be a good idea to make sure that these organizations that you're mentioning, that I mentioned, that are really uh, producing solid results, this kind of best practices, that are indeed scalable, would you support making sure that those organizations have access to those funds that they can make, continue to maintain such direct, immediate impact in the communities that they're in? Well, I think there's two things that need to happen. Um, first of all, the and there's an there's another um, there's another organization down in Eugene. The Eugene Mission is doing a really good job of the whole person concept here. They're not just addressing one particular need, but they're looking at it as a whole person concept. So there's a couple of things that need to happen in a scenario like this where you're counting on the communities working together. Number one, they have to share information, okay? As I've talked with some places that have some really good practices, and I've talked to a few that that I don't think are, are as good as they could be because they have dependencies in places that are vulnerable, such as um, they're vulnerable to a city council vote or something or other like that. What I've learned is that none of them know about the other. So they don't, they, they all think they're working and solving a problem in their own community and they are the only ones that are really succeeding when in fact they're not. There's others doing it and they could be a huge encourager to each other. They could be sharing these practices and understanding of the problems to see how they can be mutually beneficial to each other. So being able to get these folks to talk to each other, number one, all right? And in my opinion, the governor can sit down as the governor travels across the state and gets involved with the people, all right? The governor's office is in Salem, but the governor's uh, job is throughout Oregon. So the governor needs to travel. And the more the governor gets around the state, the more the governor is able to help facilitate this dialogue of people being able to en enable each other. So that's number one. But number two, I would be very, very careful about state money being um, put into this system when some of the best practices actually have local businesses and local economies doing this. I don't think anybody knows how to run a local uh, business better than the business person themselves. I don't think that cities know how to run their practices any better than the city and the, and the county commissioners. This is stuff the state needs to stay out of, but needs to make sure it's facilitated and enabled. So from that standpoint, I'd be very careful of the money being used from a state level down. But what I would do is encourage and do all I could as the governor and encourage the legislature to do the same thing, that we work with the local commissions 
to enable these solutions because the problems are going to be different in each area, okay? The person that's homeless in Bend is probably gonna have some different issues than a group of homeless folks under a bridge here in Salem or in Portland, okay? So you have to let the local areas understand that and dictate it, not, not from the top down. So that's my, that, that's my approach to solving the problem. As we get through more detail, obviously more is gonna come out, but again, it comes down to the state enabling the solution, not dictating the solution. No, absolutely. Yes, I'm not. Uh, let me just clarify that. I know that the organizations I mentioned here locally have a lot of uh, private business support, community leader support, uh, total community embracing them, and a lot of people are contributing to th those successes. And so I, I wasn't implying that make it the state's job, but just wondering if if these organizations that are having success in these different municipalities would there still be some kind of, could they apply to the state for some additional support just to, so that they could continue on with the work? That's what I was saying. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I get what you're saying. Um, I would imagine so, yeah, because the state has got to be able to assist, and that's the key thing. Enabling and, and assisting is one thing. Being the rich uncle that just, you know, hands out money is not an appropriate or responsible manner uh, to handle the taxpayer funds, fundamentally. But what we ought to be doing is working within each of these communities to find out, well, what are your economic pressures? What are the financial successors here that we need to identify to help you solve the problem? And, and that also means, what can we do to help local businesses get involved as well? You know, what, what are the things that we as a state could do to help enable your business so that your business can help focus more on the local community? Taxes obviously aren't the solution to that one. Well, there's, there's no doubt. And it feels like the homeless crisis, it's, it is indeed a humanitarian crisis for yeah. all the reasons you mentioned and more. Yeah. It does seem impossible from my perspective and unrealistic to think that we're going to be able to create a 100% satisfactory solution across the board because it just... We can't legislate as much as we would like to mental health. We can't legislate all these other mitigating circumstances and factors. Um, we have to, people that are in desperate situations need support, but also we all have to contribute our efforts. Yes. Regardless of what side you're on. Yeah. And this is, uh, when I first started looking at the homeless um, challenges that we got across the state, my initial reaction was, this is, I'm not sure this can be solved. This is so huge. And it's easy to get to, to feel a sense of despair associated with that. But what I have come to realize after particularly talking with several agencies that are doing an outstanding job of, of getting uh, a number of these folks into society, self-worth is there there, it, it works I, by any definition you want to look at it. So from my standpoint, I have, I have tremendous hope. So much so that my goal would be that by the end of my term, my four years, that we've taken Oregon and Oregon is no longer the laughing stock of the nation. But instead, Oregon quite literally is the example that other states use to say, we need to replicate what Oregon did. Look how well it's worked. That's, now that's my goal. 
That's a good goal for for any of us. Uh, let's move on to some of the other questions we have, Jim. Uh, there are many candidates seeking the office of governor here in Oregon. What is it you believe separates you from others running for this elected office? Well, aside from our platform, which, as I said a moment ago, is really focused um, firmly on, on the rioting,s the violence, the homelessness, and, and education, which uh, we can talk about in a little bit, I'm focused on those key issues because our campaign is focused on winning. When you're part of the third largest, or you are the third largest party in the state, you could pull every voter out of the Republican uh, party and you're still not going to have enough votes to win. So you have to have a strategy. That strategy has to understand what issues will move voters. We know that we need a, a, a portion of the Democrats out of, out of Multnomah, Clackamas, Washington County. We know that we need a number of the non-affiliated voters as well. And we are absolutely convinced through the data, through the polling, through understanding the issues that we can do that with this particular platform. What we also understand is that, again, we look at the data and you may find this hard to believe. I know a number of people do when we talk about this, but we also get a number going, yeah, that's right. Oregon is not a blue state. We're a red state. And I say that because when you go look at the uh, statewide ballot initiatives, Oregon typically votes red, but we're very blue in our legislature makeup and obviously with our governor. So from that perspective, we look very blue. But when the people of Oregon get behind an issue statewide, it typically comes out as a red item. And that's why we know we're, we're able to win. We, we are taking the approach and focusing on those particular points that the other candidates are not. And last but not least, well, I'm not a professional politician. How does that help you not being a professional politician right now in this season of crises that we're facing? I think fundamentally, um, true leadership and management sits down and looks at all sides of the issue, not just what is expedient from a political perspective within their own, um, their following, if you will. From a military perspective, I can tell you that if you didn't look at all options on the table, if you didn't invite all options to be put on the table, and look at them carefully, you would lose. It's that simple. And if we don't do that within this state in the coming years, we will lose. It's not a matter of, of if, it's a matter of when. And this state is really poised, not only for massive change, but the question is what change are we poised for? Are we gonna to continue to go over the edge or are we gonna turn this course around? Um, that type of leadership perspective is absolutely critical. Um, I, can, I can remember one particular instance during Desert Storm where our boss came in and needed a solution that was incredibly creative. Nobody understood, you know, it's like, oh, we've never done this before, but we need to do this. Particular mission was to take out the head of the Iraqi Air Force with minimal collateral damage, okay? This was a 15-story building. We needed to take out only the 11th floor. And we did that. But before that mission, before we came up with a means to do that, the boss sat back and asked one question. He'd been briefed the whole plan. Everything had been put out on the table. And he asked one question. 
When does the cleaning crew leave? Nobody in that room had thought about that. Everybody were all, you know, experts at what we did, but nobody thought about that. And one, uh, one lieutenant colonel who was in charge of intel, the intelligence division on the battle staff, asked the question that nobody had the nerve to ask. She said, sir, why is that important? Because I'm willing to bet that the AV either got children or grandchildren that would like to see them again. And in a moment, he put a human face on the side of war, which is an ugly business. And I have never forgotten that lesson, that when you were faced with really tough, almost insurmountable odds, you better look at every piece of it and you better look at it from a human perspective because if you don't, you're gonna make a mistake. And that's an incredible gift that I received decades ago in part of my leadership and management training on the job. So, so the, for the voters then that are gonna hear this, that are watching tonight, because they're watching, I can tell you that, and that will watch in the days ahead and as you camp campaign going into the new year, are you saying to the voters that are not really quite sure about your platform, your campaign, your positions, are you saying to them that they matter as much to you as in that moment, that Lieutenant Colonel saying, what time does the maintenance staff go home? Because they probably have children and grandchildren that want to see them again. Are you uh, making a statement that you will give them those that same type of consideration in your decision making? I have to. <clears throat> I absolutely have to. You're swearing an oath to the office to serve 4.3 million people that live in the state of Oregon. Yes, I want everybody to vote for me. I know that that's not realistic. But I don't care whether you vote for me or not. You are a citizen of Oregon, and you are my responsibility to serve, period. Very good. Let's, we're just going to keep bouncing around these questions. We've covered a lot. I'm really enjoying the opportunity to learn more about you and hear more about your perspective, Jim. Let's talk about education. Let's talk about uh, some of the things you mentioned earlier about how Oregon is lagging in educational achievement. What are your what What are your thoughts on how to improve that? We have a we have a an interesting system here in Oregon um, that I think is we we can see it's pretty easy to say it doesn't work, all right? So when you take over $10 billion just in the past couple of years and put it into an educational system with the intention to improve it, but instead what you've done is now Oregon, or I'm sorry, not necessarily now, but prior to this latest action by, by Governor Brown and the legislature, um, Oregon was, uh, yeah, I think about 47th, if I recall correctly, 47th or 48th. We're down at the bottom of the list anyway, in terms of, of education in this country. When we have universities like, uh, like OU, U of O, Western Oregon, I mean, we've got some phenomenal educational institutions here, small, medium, large. Okay. We've got some great high schools here. I know my own kids go to a phenomenal one here in Salem. And our numbers are like that. And we've thrown $10 billion at it. That's a problem. Whenever you now have to say, we have to remove any standards 
You don't have to demonstrate proficiency at reading, writing, or, or arithmetic to be able to get a high school diploma in this state. That's travesty. And I've used that word a couple of times tonight. There are a number of things that are just not right. So go look at why that's the case. Well, to start with, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of using standards and having standards by which you evaluate performance. Because otherwise, how do you know whether or not you meet the standard? So let's say you went to your doctor and he recommended surgery for something. I would hope you would want the surgeon to have been able to demonstrate they were proficient at a standard necessary to provide the care as they operated on you. So standards are very important. I know, in the, you know, the Air Force, you got to have standards to keep the planes flying safely, okay? But to not have standards and be able to assess education, that's a problem. That doesn't mean that just because someone doesn't meet a standard that you ignore that. You go back and you look and you go, well, what have we got with the standard? Was the standard properly established? Did we have the right assessment? Did we teach to the standard correctly? There's a whole number of things that have to go through that thought process, but simply sitting on the side and abolishing, that's, that's not a solution. One of the other things, and this would be probably, I guess, right up front, early on, the governor should not be the head of the education department for the state as well. There's a number of relationships with the governor's office that needs to be changed. Um, and people who are, are better qualified should be the ones handling education, providing recommendations as needed, that needs to occur. I know that in one particular instance, uh, one of the high schools that I, I mentioned here in Salem, they're phenomenal. Some of the best teachers I've ever seen. This is a public school. I love these guys. They're wonderful. And it's partially because of the principal that they have. They have a principal that is absolutely stellar. And she sets a standard and her staff works very hard to meet or exceed the standard as do the teachers. And it's evident with the kids in that school. I also know that that is not common throughout the state. And that's a shame. Not all principals feel enabled to do what she is able to do. So we've got to have some consistency of our education so that there aren't pockets of excellence and pockets of poor performance. And as I mentioned, poor performance, it's not just the kids that we need to assess against standards. We need to make sure that all of our educators are properly trained, properly equipped and ready to do the job of education, which means, by the way, we need to assess them to make sure that they are qualified. And if they're not, Let's work to get them up to speed. We're not there. If $10 billion didn't change the system and make it better, that's a lot of money, number one. But number two, what in, you mentioned some of the things just now about some of the <clears throat> things you think are relevant, but what else do you think might be necessary to create a more dynamic change if it's not $10 billion? Again, I go back to throwing money at a problem without understanding where the real problem is, isn't going to solve anything. So that's number one. And number two, just because you're throwing money at the problem, if you don't change the structure of the organization, where it's accountable, where it's responsible and that sort of thing, you're not going to solve the problem there either. 
And so as part of what I'm talking about is just simply with the structure alone of establishing accountability for educational excellence, establishing standards to define that excellence and establishing an individual that is qualified to be able to define those elements and work with the schools. Someone who has tremendous experience in working with school programs around the state to be able to put them in a position where they can actually lead this effort and get it out of the hands of the governor. At that point, I think you might find you don't need a $10 billion because you've helped enable people to do their jobs to the best of their ability. You may, be, you may need the money, maybe not that much, and I'd be surprised if you did, but until you create an environment where the people in it can flourish and do their best, you'll never get there. What about to the educators that are gonna to listen to this and say, Jim, we are doing our best. We are giving this all we have. Are you, are you implying that we're not good enough? What are you saying to us? What would you say to them? To those educators, and frankly, to most all of them within the state of Oregon, I absolutely, you are doing your best. You're not being enabled by the state and other issues around you from a management perspective to do your best. I mean, think about this. We've been doing online learning across the state one size fits all teachers have not been able to truly be themselves and i go back to they don't have an environment where they can do that whether it's you know whether you're dealing with with you know how the union is involved in this or how the state is mandating certain aspects of education etc educators are the professionals they're the experts we need to be listening to them as to how best to move forward and we need to be listening to the ones that are on the ground in our classrooms. And we need to be working with the principals in those schools as well. We're just not getting that voice out. School boards are another aspect that are absolutely critical. School boards have to have the local community involvement. What we find is we're beginning to see some school boards that have representation that is not reflective of the local community. And when that happens, we're beginning to see those flashpoints. We're seeing those, those situations explode in these meetings, and we see them on Facebook or in the news and stuff like that. We've got to make sure that we, as a society, understand what's going on in the schools, and the best way to do that is to be active and part of your school board and your school commissions. Well, I can say one thing for sure. When the schools closed last year and I had to stay home to help my daughter through her online curriculum as my wife was trying to save her law practice, uh, there's a reason why I'm not a school teacher. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I have taught in, in three different universities. Um, I've, I've lectured at NC State University back in North Carolina. Uh, I was an adjunct faculty at uh, Campbell University, also back in North Carolina, and most recently here uh, at Corbin University in, here in Salem. And I, I can tell you, it takes a very special mindset to be a teacher and really make a, an impact, a positive impact in these young people's lives. Uh, it's a gift. It's certainly a skill set that can be, be honed over time, but it's ultimately it's a gift because it, the really good teachers I've seen, man, it's coming from here. They, they do things I, I couldn't even begin to do. And I, I'll admit that. That's, you know, that's where you go find the people that are really good at it and get them to show you how to do it. You know, this, the question, some of the issues that came up around, <clears throat> excuse me, around testing is that testing was unfair to 
much of the population for a myriad of reasons. What would you, if you're elected governor, how would you look at that testing? How would you listen to the, that commentary with an open mind yourself, with your staff and say, is there or are there areas of the testing that we should reconsider? Whether it's for special needs children or the home, there's so many children in school now that are homeless. Uh, there's just so much going on. What might you be willing to do if elected governor to really consider a, a, a sincere look at the testing and say, are there adjustments we should be making? First of all, the answer is absolutely. And second of all, I would probably go a little bit further and not say are there, I'd say there are. I don't think I'd posit that as a question. Uh, I think I would actually walk in, and this is a bad thing to do, walk in knowing there's already something to do. But I believe that there is. Um, one of the things that I learned, um, and this was on my PhD in engineering, was that you had to do a dissertation. Mm -hmm. And dissertations are incredibly uh, painful to do. Uh, they are, uh, are stress-filled months after months, particularly when you go to defend what you did. But one of the best lessons I learned from that entire process was data analysis and interpretation. I look at the data and try to understand what's really going on. And I think if we look at testing data and we look at it from a broad perspective, I don't mean just this one test with this one group of, of students. I mean, we need to look at it across the board and get a what, what I call in the military, or what we call in the military, the big picture. You know, what's, what's the larger issue here? I think what we're gonna start seeing are gonna be trends. And those are gonna be trends that we need to assess. Um, you can teach a skill, okay? You can teach a skill and you can establish a standard. But if it's a life skill and it affects the student or the learner outside of the classroom, which most, you know, in high school, that's most of what you're trying to do, then you need to understand what that economic, the social, what that entire environment outside looks like and how that affects the results or the learning process, okay? That's going to affect the testing conditions. I don't care how else, how you want to look at it. For those that are maybe interested in physics, um, we call it, it, it there, there's an element here called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, where when you're, when you're trying to assess the status of an electron, the fact of observing it influences that electron. You can't really determine where it is. <clears throat> there's an element here of assessing testing standards, testing quality, and testing metrics that also has that Heisenberg principle to it. Because if you don't take into account what's on the outside influencing it, you stand a chance, there's a probability that you're going to miss something. And I tend to think that a lot of the testing methodologies aren't taking that into account. So I would go in with the, with the hypothesis, if you will, or the, or, or the, uh, the thesis that maybe there, there, there's uh, our testing data and our testing results are being influenced from other factors than just the classroom. And if you, if you look at it from that standpoint, and I think you have to, because to not consider external influences, I think you're not getting an accurate look at the testing results. That's a long-winded answer, but that's from, from an academic standpoint, that's how I would look at it. And I can tell you, having made up, uh, having made up exams in a variety of different subjects and at, at different schools and so forth, 
that's not an easy thing to do. That in and of itself is a science and almost an art for developing testing. The person, the person, excuse me, the person best qualified to help guide that is going to be the teacher in the classroom, boots on the ground, as we say in the military, okay? The person closest to the student and the situation can help best assess that. And my concern is I'm not too sure we're listening enough to the teachers in that regard. Well, you know, the answer, it is complex. And just the fact that if you're elected governor, I think for those that are listening to this, that you'd be willing to sit down with a team of experts and say, let's really consider the flaws with the testing. Let's listen to what, uh, you know, our constituents are saying and let's let's revamp it so that it it's about helping students be successful. Correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to do. What, obviously, you have to define what success is, and, and the students need to have a part of that. You know, what, what do they want to do? Um, what, what can be a measure of success? Um, but no, this is one where, again, I go back to there's a number of issues and challenges across the state at different levels. The governor is not going to be the one to solve them all, okay? Don't look to the governor to be, be the, 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 the person that comes in and says, yay, verily, and it's all taken care of. That is not the job of the governor. The job of the governor and any leader is to enable the dialogue, enable the discussions, and enable solutions, not create barriers to them so that they only fit that person's, the, the, in this case, the governor's narrow view of how they should be solved. They have to work with people and they've got to enable the solution because everybody else coming together is going to be smarter than the one individual called governor. And that's where the solutions need to come from. I'd like to stay on this theme of education for, for a little bit longer. What are your thoughts, if elected governor, Jim, how would you address the rising cost of higher education? It is skyrocketing beyond people's means anymore. What are your thoughts? What do you think our state can do to help augment or, you know, put a lid, I don't know if it's even the right expression, to try to prevent this from getting the increases, it's too much. Yeah, I, I hear you. Um, the, the challenge we have, unfortunately, is again, there's many components to that. <clears throat> you, um, if, for example, um, you can graduate from high school and take advantage of the Oregon promise, wind up getting an associate's degree that doesn't really cost you anything, okay, a two-year degree. I know that the community college system has some wonderful doors and pathways predefined so that when you're done with your two years from them, you go right into a four-year university into the track that you're looking for. So there's a lot of really good communication between the, um, the two-year and four-year programs here, okay? So I mentioned that because I, I, I can hold up my daughter's one success story for that, where she graduated with, with really great grades, was able to work through the Oregon Promise System. She wanted to, to, to study art, art history, that sort of thing, work through um, Schmackada, worked through getting into Portland State University. She's done, did incredibly well at Portland State. She got a job and between her job, which had an educational benefit even to part-time employees, 
was able to significantly cut down the cost of, of her education. So she's able to, and, and mom and I are very thankful for this because we couldn't have afforded otherwise, she's able to graduate from college with virtually no debt, with the degree that she wanted, that she's been trained in a discipline that she wanted to have, and she's already learned these life skills. And this was all because the Oregon Promise had been set up and she had gone through a high school environment that was very supportive of everything she was trying to do, okay? So for years, the high school, the community college, the four-year program had educators that came alongside and encouraged and enabled her to do this. I also know that that's not a common scenario and it should be. I think that's a phenomenal story for her, but what's sad is there's a lot of kids that don't have that experience. And they may have had the grades, they may not have had the knowledge to go through this, but for whatever reason, we've not done a good job getting them through that program. Now, this is one example. One of my sons is applying to a bunch of colleges right now, some in Oregon, some not, because he's looking for the best financial deal because he knows a lot of this is going to be on his own hook. It's really a shame to see premier universities with such incredibly high tuition rates. And you have to wonder why. And I can tell you that having been on faculty, both at Corbin, at Campbell, and as I said earlier, NC State University, I've got a little insight as to what the challenges are, both on both sides of the equation, both on the academic side, but also on the institutional side. The institutions that have grown, they've increased their, their facility space, their opportunities that they can offer, et cetera, that have done that through a rich, vibrant, and very involved alumni association have been able to do these things without having to significantly raise um, tuition rates beyond what would be a reasonable rate to be able to pay staff and operate the programs. But then there's some that haven't. And those are the ones where they're, they're not managing their school in a, in a really fiscally sound manner. And that who's going to pay that, that price? Well, it's going to be the student. But the problem is we've also made it so easy for students to get student loans. Well, here's the money. Well, the university's happy, but the student may not, and in some cases didn't realize what they were getting involved with. Getting a $100,000 student loan well, the, the school got their money. They're happy. The finance company's making their money on, on, you know, the interest payments. Who's left holding the bag? The student. That's an area that we, could, we need to get involved in and work with that scenario because the vulnerable person in that scenario was the 18 or 19-year-old student trying to go to college to start their life. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. That, that's a big part of the problem, I should say. And if you're elected governor, what are your thoughts towards ongoing technical trade schooling and developing the ongoing apprenticeship programs through the, the for the trade? Two thumbs up. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you want to go to college, you should be able to. But you shouldn't go to college thinking that that's the only place you can go that you can earn a good living. Trade schools are phenomenal places to go to learn valuable life skills. And these are skills that typically are going to help uh, regardless of what the economy does. I don't wanna say there's anything as a recession-proof job, 
But I'm going to tell you something. If you can service vehicles, if you can build homes, if you can service HVAC systems, if you can weld, if you can do a lot of the manual labor, a lot of the task, what we typically consider blue collar jobs, those are the ones that survive no matter what. Those are the ones that serve society the best, in my opinion. We absolutely need to be building those up. Absolutely. That career path is one that needs to be looked at. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned in the intro, we've got three kids. Well, my third one's looking at that path. You know, he's not interested in college. It's not for him. And we're going, that's okay, son. What do you want to do? So absolutely, I agreed with the uh, trade schools. Let's go down to the local level, this ongoing, not just a local crisis, but is a growing national crisis around the issue of critical race theory. Mm -hmm. I think that both sides of the argument need to be heard. I think everyone, you know, it's usually three sides to every story, right? There's this yeah. side, there's this side, the truth is somewhere always right here in the middle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you're elected governor, what how would you interject into that into that tension to try to bring some levity to it to those that are concerned about uh, how things might be shifting too dramatically and how can we you know bring some um leadership to that issue yeah and i and i, I part of your question is how can we not react too too drastically we're doing a lot of knee jerking on this we're, we're hearing buzzwords and phrases and all that and we're, we're, we're really doing a lot of knee jerking without understanding what those words and phrases actually mean <clears throat> obviously the first is as i said early on one of the very first things you do when you're trying to solve problems is actually understand what the problem is okay so when we talk about critical race theory or we talk about any element that's that uses race as a as a key component or as a as an evaluator within the it, within its argument. I, I get a little concerned because it's very easy to misunderstand what that says. And that's when I, I, I come back to I want to evaluate somebody by the by their character, by the content of their character, what they do and, and, and not about color or anything like that. I'll also suggest, too, that we need to look forward. Yes, you need to look backwards to understand what the problems and issues are and how you got here. But you need to solve the problem going forward, not try to go back in time and say, oh, well, we're going to correct everything in the past. Well, the people of today didn't cause the past. People of today can solve the future. And we've got to be looking forward on these issues. Any leader, I don't care if it's at the government level, the governor level, the president level, our elected representatives within the legislature, folks on the school board commissions, or the mom and dad in the home. They've got to be looking at it as a problem. They've got to be looking at it calmly, and they've got to try to understand all sides. We've got to move forward with this and recognize you are not supposed to feel bad or guilty or anything like that because of how you look. That's wrong. We are all Americans. And within this state, we're all Oregonians. We can do better. 
It's, it, it, is, it is challenging for sure as it unfolds in each community. Um, first of all, let me say for the record, for those that hear this, I really have no definition of what critical race theory is or its doctrinal foundation. Just like there's a myriad of expressions of what that means, same as what defending the police means to different uh, parties. Um, I understand that we we have to teach legitimate history. I took my I went and visited the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee, where Martin Luther King was assassinated, and they have outlined historically how judicially this nation created the slave um, um, position in this country. And I think that is something we should teach and should understand so that those errors are not made again. Legislatures can't resume that kind of legal uh, positioning. We, I, right. So, it, I mean, it, it is tough. Uh, and I wish I had all the answers. And I think I think most people, you know, want to have honest conversations around this. And I'm not really sure how to address it. Uh, but I'm concerned for every community in this country as well that we're going to digress to such a point. We're going to begin assaulting each other. Right. This. I'm, I'm sincerely concerned yeah. about that. And, and, and I think you should be, Mark. And, and I will say you, you, you made, a, um, made an excellent point there that w has been summed up as, you know, if, if those who don't uh, remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Um, that's a very ancient phrase. Dates back to, um, I believe, to an Italian philosopher um over a thousand years ago i may be off on my years but it's uh Santignano was the one that originally came up with that and it's absolutely true if if we don't learn the past we will repeat it because it's human nature um so by not teaching an accurate full and complete past our future is at risk bottom line we need to do a lot better job of making sure we're teaching an accurate, complete, and full history. I don't know, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but when I went through grade school, one of there was an entire chapter in our history book dedicated to World War II, for example. Two chapters dedicated to the Civil War. I challenge you to go open up any history book today and see more than a couple of pages on World War II. There is no way possible that you can discuss the many issues associated with World War II, good, bad, and otherwise, in two or three pages. The United States has a lot to be proud of. We all do. But like any society, like any race, like any group of people, we also have some things that we're not proud of. We need to focus on both of them so that we have a weighted and contextually accurate picture of what worked and what didn't so that we don't forget what we should be doing. Let's talk a little bit. Let's change the topic about um, budgets. Can you please explain to the audience some of the types of budgets you have worked with in the past 
and expand on budget development, budget deficiencies, and prioritizing during times of economic challenges from your experiences? Sure. I'm looking at the clock here, man. I don't know if we got enough time for this one, but here we go. All right, hang on. <clears throat> when I got my commission in the Air Force, I thought I was going to go off. I'm, I'm going off to Space Command. I'm going to go be part of the Space Force. I'm going to be all good. This is back in the 80s. All right, I'm going to go work on the shuttle program, and this is all good. Except when I left officer training school as a brand new second lieutenant, I got detoured to Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. And I got detoured there because there was a six week long course we were required to take. And it was about budgeting. It was about the government budgeting process. Now, this is at the federal level, but the state doesn't vary too much from it because budgeting is budgeting. Okay. So I've had um, just right up front, I've had some pretty darn good training uh, in government, uh, government budgets. I've also had a lot of involvement because one of the things that you have to do as an executive officer, which was one of the jobs I had in the military, um, you've got to work with all your uh, divisions and director chiefs and so forth for input into the POM or the five-year budget cycle, et cetera. And we're dealing with millions upon millions of dollars and trying to forecast what we need to have. The downside is, is that that process also required actually mandated that you must have no unspent dollars at the end of the year. If you actually did really well on managing your budget and you didn't spend everything by the end of the fiscal year, you had to spend it because if you didn't, they would take that away from you the next year. That's not an incentive process to do good. That's an incentive process to save money and have fun. So from a government standpoint, not very effective. But when I worked in, in, uh, in the civilian world, I worked for some fairly large corporations. Back in the 90s, uh, I had the opportunity to, uh, to deal with budgets that for most people in their early, uh, early 30s, dealing with millions of dollars in the 90s would be huge sums today, 30 years later. Those were budgets where you had to make them. You were not in a situation where, well, we'll we have money left over. It was always, no, how, how little can you spend and still accomplish the mission because we have to be fiscally responsible because we're, we're, we're not made of money. We're not, a we're not the country where we can print money. Obviously, most recently with my own company here for the past 12, 13 years with New Shepherd Films, every penny counts. You have to project forward what you need, what you've spent, et cetera, as well as handle the accounting. Budgets are something that while I never expected to be um, deeply involved with, has been something that's been part of almost every job I've ever had. It's not been a matter of, am I gonna be involved in budgeting? It's just a matter of how big they are. Whether they were hundreds of millions of dollars uh, at Space Command, whether they were 20 or $30 million uh, with AMR or CSX, <clears throat> or whether they were in very small micro budgets for New Shepard Films, the point is I'm very familiar with it. Does the thought of the potential losses due to the pandemic and or economic challenges that we have, if you're elected governor, does the thought of the kind of budgetary issues that you may have to confront, does that overwhelm you at all? Do you feel like you can assemble the necessary staff, the skill staff to lead the state through that, uh, that season? Yes, I am completely confident I can get 
pull together the right staff to manage the budget challenges that I know that we're going to have. We're already beginning to see some of them. The issue isn't a matter of can I find the, uh, the expertise and the talent to be able to do that. The question is going to be, can we do it in a time frame, not assemble the staff, but be able to actually correct the economy and, and, and reestablish a solid footing for, for the Oregon economy? Can we do it in a time frame that will minimize the impact to the population? I believe so. The challenge is, obviously, since I'm not sitting in the governor's seat, I don't have privy to all of the information behind the scenes. I don't know what I don't know. But I do believe, I do believe that it is eminently solvable because I do see where we're doing things financially um, that concern me a little bit. And I know that it doesn't make good economic sense. I'm not, again, I've already said, <clears throat> said things like, you know, we, we don't need to be worrying about taxes and increasing that. We're, we're not on the right footing when we're already trying to take money away from the people. We gotta, we've got to find ways to make that work and leave that alone. My bigger concern is whether or not we're operating, whether the operational aspects of our government are actually on a solid financial footing. That's the place that I would say we're not. How would you address, if you're elected governor and you're having to speak to the state legislature around budgetary concerns, you know, we're fairly divided at every level of government in, our, in, our, in this nation. How would you address the partisanship to bring a common goal and a common thread to the conversation around not just the budget, but, but any issue? Regardless of what your position is in this government, okay, whether you're a representative, whether you're a senator, whether you're the governor, whether you're the treasurer, I don't care what your I don't care what your position is within the, the government. You're there to serve the people outside the door. If you can't focus on that, you need to consider whether or not you're serving and whether or not you need to consider serving. We focus out there. And we need to demonstrate that focus by our actions in here. And if you don't, I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat, I'm gonna hold you accountable. And if I hold you accountable, that simply means I'm going to make absolutely sure that every single person in your voting precinct or district knows what you've done. We're not gonna have secret votes. We're not gonna have stuff going on that where, where votes are taken to overturn voter initiatives as they just recently did on measure 11. This is gonna be open and we have to be accountable to the people. What's happened recently, particularly within the last 18 months, is whenever you've mandated lockdowns, you've mandated social distancing, you've kept everybody in their homes, you've created an environment of fear. You've got everybody in their, their three-foot bubble, if you will, and they're not allowed to come out. And if they do, they're afraid. There's too much of that fear going on. That allows for elected representatives to begin to get comfortable of not having to see their constituents. We work for 4.3 million people, like I just said a minute ago. If we can't look them in the eye and say what we did, you've got a problem. So the first thing you have to do is sit down and have this honest, frank discussion. This is folks, 
we have to make government do what it was supposed to do. And that means we are answerable to the people. Would you give the public access back to the state capitol? Yes, absolutely, in a heartbeat. <clears throat> Let's talk about labor shortages. What are your thoughts on helping businesses contend with the issue of labor shortages across the state? You know, I think um, I think it's kind of interesting. If you sit back and look at it over a timeline here, you know, 15, 15 months, 18 months or whatever. These businesses were operating with people. They had jobs. We weren't having these labor shortages. So what caused these labor shortages to start with? I mean, there's a lot of issues here. I get that. But when we start subsidizing and paying people not to work, that's a problem. That's needed during the critical elements of a pandemic. I, that, that, that makes sense. I get that. But there comes a point where it needs to stop. You need to stop taking the, the handouts and go back to work. It's not like your job's not there. It's not like jobs are not there. All right. When we've got a McDonald's just down the road from us, their sign is up there. We're hiring 14 and 15 year olds and paying them 15 plus dollars an hour because they can't get anybody else to come work to keep that business open. You need to incent the people to come back to work. That means they need to go get the jobs back. They need to walk back in the door and perform for their jobs. That's a problem when that doesn't happen. It puts the businesses in a situation where they now have to hire people that may not be as able or as um, qualified to do the job, and they have to pay them more. There's labor laws that protect those younger employees like that. I don't know about you, but do you feel comfortable if you own the McDonald's franchise to have a 14-year-old child handling the deep fry cooker for the French fries? I'm not sure that's an entirely safe environment, but yet that's what we're forcing and creating through a lot of these, these, these unemployment subsidies. So that's one thing. The other aspect is we need to take a look at um, some of the, the, the other abatements. Rent abatements another, is, is a prime example. There are scenarios where people need help on their rent, particularly as we've been through this pandemic. I get that. But there also are a lot of people, because I've talked to landlords, who are taking advantage of that and not paying their fair share. That has to stop. We're in this together and we need to recognize some responsibility that we all have to each other. And I believe we can do that. Well, let me ask the question again though, because I wanna, do you have a particular strategy if you're elected governor, Jim, what do you have a particular strategy or thoughts on how to get the labor shortages, how to get it active again, how to get people re how you get that balance back. Yeah. <clears throat> well, part of that goes back to um, understanding that the issues are not going to be statewide. Some of them are okay. There's some, some simple low hanging fruit statewide, do away the subsidies um, and, and that sort of thing. But a lot of this is, is 
regional specific. Okay, so for example, the issues that are facing businesses in Portland are the, the, the ongoing violence, the lack of, of enforcement of the laws. In other words, we've got, a, we've got a dangerous situation in Portland, okay? We have customers not willing to go to Portland. We have insurance companies preventing businesses from being able to open back up because they can't even get insurance, all right? So the labor shortage is only one piece of that overall puzzle. And while it doesn't pale in comparison, that business owner has got a lot more things on, on their mind than just the labor part. I've talked to a few businesses up there <clears throat> that it's really just the family now that's running it, keeping it going. But they're more concerned as whether or not they're going to come in the next day and find their business even still there. All right. So that that's a regional issue because that particular fear or problem doesn't exist, say, down in, in Bandon or in, um, in Coos Bay or in Cottage Grove. These areas have different factors. I know here in Salem, um, the main issue is simply the availability of workers. So coming at day one, again, state level issues like, like the subsidies um, and working through rent abatement and how to get off of that so that our landlords are able to actually continue to own the property. I mean, think about it. They've still got to make the payments in most cases, but they don't have the income that was intended to do that. But until you sit down and understand where your issues are, and most effectively, okay, number one is going to be your law enforcement side of this entire equation to make our society, to make our cities, make our environments safer. Because until we get the safety under control, the majority of our businesses are still going to be suffering no matter what. You could have plenty of workers roll right back in tomorrow, but if they can't afford to keep their doors open because, again, lack of insurance or fear of, of uh of safety or their customers don't show up. Those are all things that relate into this. This is a, this is a web of issues and we got to take them one at a time, unfortunately. What about, you know, firsthand seeing it here locally when the schools were shut down? I know it's shifting a little bit, but some schools are hybrid still. Yeah. Some are full uh, attendance. There are still parents having to stay home with kids who are in hybrid school, limited amount of daycare and little options for before and after school programs, children with special needs now because those programs aren't open. My concern is that I know that's I know it's a big picture, but what about though that part of the labor force that is for, is still going to be forced to try to adjust to these very real daily concerns that these are still just as real as they were eight months ago, a year ago, and those people are still in our neighbors, they're in our communities, and they're not staying home because they're being subsidized for, for some other thing is because they've got these other mitigating uh, circumstances keep them from doing more. Yeah. So in other words, they're staying home because they're, they're recognizing their responsibility to their family. And that is key. That's critical. We need more. Be honest with you. I'd be a lot happier if a lot more people recognize the responsibility they have just within their own home and made that stronger. There's, there's a lot of opportunities in, in this area, but I go back to, let's take a look at how 
we were talking about homeless, where a community has come together to help. And again, I go back to when you've got communities that have these situations, that have these challenges for people that are members of the community, I would encourage the community to be the ones to help step up and help solve that problem. I'm not a big fan of the government coming in and saying, don't worry, you go to work, we'll take care of your child. I don't think that solves the problem. And I don't think it produces a really great relationship anywhere. What I would love to see is that the community has, got, has come together and recognized this is a need we have and we need to help out. That would be a program that I would love to endorse. One thing to consider in that too is that and I realize this is not true for all businesses, all right? It would be near, well, it'd be impossible for mine now, but one of um, uh, some businesses are able to actually help in childcare or daycare, things of that nature. They're actually able to provide that or at least contribute to that for their employees. You talk about employee loyalty, okay? Your employer's helping you and you're helping them. That's what it's about. That's how we work together. But again, not all businesses, not all employers are, are able to do that. I understand that. But when and where they can, I would highly encourage those programs being developed and uh, enabled by the state to be to be part of the solution for all of us. Again, it's not all going to come from the state. I guess just for me, uh, for all the candidates moving forward, Jim, regardless if it's Senate, governor, city council, county commissioner, that we're careful that we don't uh label the labor shortage all in one conglomerate identifying factor of people that are just you know taking from the system because there are so many so many things different now with right. elder health and living you know insurance medical insurance have gone up yeah. people can't go to hospitals anymore sit with family i mean it, it is so complex and I just want to make sure we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And remember, there are a lot of legitimate extenuating circumstances for a lot of our population. And, and let's not forget one other thing, too. Part of the labor shortage is because people just moved out of the state. They, they got fed up with the place. They left. All right. Some of this is, you know, we're shooting ourselves in our own foot with that one. Okay. But you made a comment there about, um, you know, emergency rooms and, and, and uh, kind of touching briefly on on the healthcare side of it um healthcare industry has really been stretched almost beyond measure uh when we talk about uh the the, the pandemic providing health care <clears throat> we've already mentioned that that mental health services are non-existent right now the hospitals that where where you go to the er you know, as, as your primary care physician, as we all know, that's not what emergency rooms are for. Some of the hospitals that I know of where they've taken the, the ER and, the, and, and, and on, on admission or input into the ER, they're determining right up front, do you go to the ER or do they have a clinic available that, that you can go to? Okay, so that we're not overloading the ER staff, but instead they've got an on-site clinic. Those are successful models. Not all hospitals are able to do that. Mm -hmm. That's something, though, again, that, that I think we could look at. I think that's a good point, though. We do have to keep in mind, and it's, and it's like homeless, it's like any other element of our society right now. There's no one single solution to any of it. 
The people affected are not able to be lumped into one grouping, okay? There's different elements to it. Each one's going to require a different solution. Some of them are easy, and some of them are going to be incredibly hard. And we've talked about both of those right here on, on that particular case, I think, anyway, so. Yes, uh, I, I'd like to get to at least two more questions before in the next 18 minutes or so. I think they're important questions. What are your thoughts? If elected, if elected governor, how would you make sure the, ro the rural communities are supported? Oh, man. <clears throat> it's like you must have been with me this weekend reading my mind. Um, I was down in Bandon uh, at, a, at a GOP platform event down there. And I came back through Coquille. Beautiful part of the state. I love the drive. I, I quite frankly wanted to see the drive more than anything else because you know you spend time on an interstate you never see this never see the state and I and I looked at a town that used to be vibrant and they're struggling. It's not just the pandemic. The pandemic certainly is, has really pushed them to the edge of the cliff to, to almost go over. But there's more to it than that. It's been just a systemic set of, of initiatives and all sorts of legislation that has not looked at the rural side of Oregon. <clears throat> One of the issues that I wanted to learn more about are, for example, water rights issues down in, in, in the Klamath Falls region, particularly, though I, I, I recognize that the eastern part of, of Oregon is also going to have challenges because as, as Klamath goes, they're probably going to be going too. That's that's a problem. So as I look at that, <clears throat> and I look at our the rural aspects of, of Oregon, I'm struck by one common thread here, and that is that the administration or legislation has been state centric, with a very metropolitan perspective on it or big city approach to it. The end result, and, and this isn't just in the past couple of years, this has been going on for quite a while with policies one after the other after the other. <clears throat> whether you're dealing with, with uh, the state land boards or whether you're dealing with the state and its relationship to the federal government with the Department of Interior, however you want to look at it. At the heart of this, the governor, and, and not just Kate Brown, we're going back a few, has abdicated their responsibilities to the rural communities and allowed the Department of Interior or some federal agency, predominantly Department of Interior, to come in and take over what should be state land. That mindset, not just for water rights and timber and so forth, but that, that whole mindset has taken rural Oregon and kicked it to the curb. And that's wrong. And it's wrong for a whole lot of reasons. Number one, it's just not right to, to treat people like that. But, but more importantly, <clears throat> the economic capabilities of this state are huge. And we are, we, we've hamstrung ourselves with our timber industry. We've hamstrung ourselves with our agricultural. We've hamstrung ourselves with our ranchers by not allowing them to truly flourish. Now, make the argument that, well, they're damaging the environment. It's a balance. We can all work together as stewards on this, 
but it's got to take in this case, the governor stepping back in and going, wait a minute. These are issues that are state level issues. We've got to get the federal government out of it and we need to work effectively to balance it. If we don't do that, I shudder to think what's gonna happen uh, with our agricultural industry. We can produce more than enough food for Oregon and ship the excess out. We're not doing that. Lumber, our mills, are you serious? We can supply every lumber need for Oregon, for the country, and probably, I think, be the number one producer in the nation for the world, but we aren't. What are we doing? We're importing lumber. That does not make good sense to me, certainly not from uh, an economic standpoint. And certainly if we want to build up Oregon and say, Oregon has, is doing it right. Very good. Let me, uh, I really want to ask you this next question. If elected governor, Jim, how would you support statewide economic growth and development? What are your thoughts on that? <clears throat> The very basics of economics means that you enable the industry or industries or businesses that generate revenue to flourish. You don't hamstring them and you certainly don't penalize them for being successful at what they do. You also incentivize continued growth and development to expand their operations either where they are or in other locations. Because when that company, when that business is successful, you're generating jobs. When you're generating jobs, that money's going into the local economy. I mentioned Coquille a while ago. They don't have money coming in that environment. And as a result, you see empty buildings. You see empty businesses. You see businesses trying to sell what they have, mark everything half off. It's not right. Not for such a beautiful area as that. The fundamental principle behind business is that you enable the businesses to be successful. And you can't do that if you're constantly taxing them or hobbling them with regulations. You have to have a responsible balance. You can't let them run wild, okay? But you have to have responsible legislation and management. Do you think that we should have a better, a more vibrant state uh, recruitment of uh, maybe some international companies? That's a really good question, because that's there, there's two ways to look at that particular argument. <clears throat> I don't think we're going to be successful at recruiting anybody to come in right now. Okay, We don't have the economic um, environment for that. We don't have a business environment that is really supportive of a variety of industries to come in. It's just not there. Um, and then we have, it, it, and I'll go back to Portland, where people don't want to come there because of, of the environment they have. We've got companies... One company just the other day left and that's 150 employees that they had to leave. They shut the door because they, they don't have any, they, they, they can't continue operating there. So bringing investment from the outside is going to be extremely difficult to do. And that's only going to be effective, however, if you can show that the industries that are here are successful themselves, that it does have a thriving economy. But again, it's going to need a balance. I'm not a big fan. I'm not not a big fan of bringing in a handful of huge um, businesses that are going to skew the data for your economy and make you look good. When in fact, you've only got five or six major corporations from around the world in here. Okay, we need that balance across the board, 
not just from you know industries like like you know Amazon's warehouses or 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 Nike or any of the others. We need to have a good balance across the board for a healthy economy. Otherwise, it becomes incredibly segmented. And what happens when you get segmented? You start fighting amongst yourselves. If you had, if you were at, uh, had a, if you were in the auditorium with all the CEOs from every chamber of commerce across the state, up to the very state level, what words of encouragement would you give to them as they continue to help their local municipalities develop uh, good economic opportunities? I will do everything within my power as the governor to enable your businesses to flourish. Now, with that said, I want to make sure Mark, you understand and your viewers understand the governor is the top law enforcement executive in the state, essentially. Okay. The governor doesn't make laws. The governor doesn't sit on the courts and judge laws. The governor ensures that they're enforced. The number one job of my administration would be to make sure that if you're operating a business, if you're an employee of a business, if you're a resident of Oregon, that you're safe. Because right now that's the number one thing that is impacting your ability to have a flourishing business, to have a flourishing economy, to have a safe home. Basically to call Oregon home, you know it's not safe. That's the number one job that I would have to do. So that's the message that would go out initially, but it has to be understood that the whole reason to make it safe is so that you as the business, you as the enterprise, and I don't care if it's a one person, you know, you work out of your home or if it's a multi-billion dollar corporation, top to bottom, side to side, we've got to be safe. We've got to work together because ultimately it's all part of Oregon. It's all part of the same solution. So Jim, <clears throat> as we close uh, right now, any final comments you would like to make to the voters, the audience that have, has never seen you or heard you before at this moment, and those that are not sure, you know, about who you are or, you know, your your devotion to creating uh, this sense of a well-balanced government for the state. I believe very heavily in the Constitution. The Constitution calls for balanced government. And we don't have that. We have a supermajority that, with a handful of people, can exercise its will over the rest of Oregon. That's wrong. We have a scenario here in Oregon where political leadership which is leadership that is focused on your career as a politician and those of your constituents, takes precedence over real leadership and management, which is focused on being a servant to the people around you. Our elected officials are just that, elected. I'm not a professional politician. I'm not going into this looking for a job. I'm going into this because I absolutely believe that we need service to the community. And this community as governor is, as I've said, 4.3 million Oregonians at this point. That's my number one goal. That's my number one focus. And at the end of the day, when we get done, if you don't like the job I did, vote me out, find another one. 
but give me the chance because I am about the leadership. I am about the servants and I am about the constitution, which is intended to help protect the population, to protect the citizens, as well as to enable the citizens to be the best they can be. Not bits and pieces of it. You don't get to pick and choose which pieces of it you like and which pieces of it you don't. The governor is responsible for all of the laws, not just some. From that standpoint, I don't agree with executive mandates and executive orders being used broadly. They have a place. There is a point in time when they are needed, but they are never meant to be used to be able to legislate and mandate for extended periods of times and certainly not in the areas where the government has no business. So from that standpoint, my belief is that a lot of the government, a lot of the governing actions need to be at the local level, not run out of Salem, or in this case, out of Portland, even though the legislature's here. Very good. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had with us this evening Jim Huggins. He is in the Oregon governor's race for 2022. If you would like to get a hold of Jim, you can find him at www.makegovernmentdowhatitsuppostodo.com. And there's also a phone number of 503-881-2244. Jim, I want to thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to learn more about you, to hear more about your platform. As the days move ahead for all of us, there's going to be a lot of voices to be uh, for people to take a chance to listen to and, and to make some decisions. I bid you uh, Godspeed in your race and wish you the best as you campaign and all safety. And so we look forward to the will of the voters in 2022 and trust that uh, their will will indeed prevail. Absolutely. Mark, thank you for your time. I thank for what you're doing to help get the message out. I'm sure not just for me, but for other candidates. It's incredibly valuable. We need to have an informed population that votes. Go out and vote. Very good. Jim, you take care. You have a safe night. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk again soon. You too. Take care now. Bye.